Bruce and I closed out our conversations with a return to where we started, asking ourselves, what will it take to restore faith in America's promise? How to tell a new, unifying story about the country that is true to our highest ideals, while at the same time doing an honest accounting of where we fall short. It's not an easy thing to do in these cynical times, especially when we've got a thousand different media outlets and internet platforms that have figured out you can make lots of money fanning people's anger and resentment. Somehow, though, some kind of way, we both believe that such a story is still there to be told and that folks across the country are hungry for it. We are convinced that for all our disagreements, most of us long for a more just and compassionate America, an America where everybody belongs. We started exploring that spirit with the tale of an unlikely gift that a stranger gave to me on the campaign trail, and with Bruce explaining the story behind one of his most popular and misunderstood songs. Tell me, when, when did you think you first might want to run for president? I mean, uh -oh. what was your ambition? What made, what made, what made you want to do that? <laughs> Somebody must have dropped me on my head. <laughs> it, it traces back to everything we've been talking about. Uh, this idea of bringing America into alignment with its ideals. And that had been my work. That had been my purpose. If you're, if you're doing it right, running for president is not actually about you. It is about finding the chorus, finding the, the, the collective. Um, early in the campaign, I, I go to South Carolina and I go to this town called uh, Greenwood. And the reason I go there is because I was desperate for the endorsement of this state legislator, and she said, I'll give you the endorsement if you go to this town, mm -hmm. my town. I said, yeah. Turns out it's an hour and a half from the nearest okay. large city, and it's at a time when I'm down in the polls and we get there and it's pouring down rain and uh, there's a bad article about me in the New York Times and you know, everybody's talking about how you know, it looks like he was all flash and finally get there and it's this little, maybe a park center or something. And I walk in and I'm damp, I'm in a bad mood and suddenly uh, as I'm going around shaking hands with everybody, you hear this, fired up. Ready to go. Ready to go. <laughs> it turned out it was this wonderful woman named named Edith Childs. <laughs> she was like a uh, a part time private detective. Okay. <laughs> and she had a she, you know she had a, a great smile and she had you know pretty flamboyant uh, dress and hat on and uh, and apparently she had made a habit of saying this chant of fired up, ready to go. And, and I thought at first, this is crazy. But everybody was doing it, so I thought, well, I better do it. I'm here anyway. And suddenly I started feeling kind of good. And I, I just enjoyed That's great. the eccentricity of yeah. 
of spirit that she was showing. She was just a <laughs> cheerful spirit, yeah. right? Suddenly, I'm in a better mood. We're having a good conversation with a bunch of folks. When I leave, I ask my staff, are you fired up? Are you ready to go? That's what you discovered when you were running for president is people would lift you up. Sure. It's, it's not you. You're channeling their energy, their hopes, their power, uh, their resilience. Now, there you, what you would also discover, is, as you'd expect, is that some of those darker strains in American life are, are there. So, you know, when I, when I go down to South Carolina, I have that great story with Edith Childs. I also have moments where I'll go into a diner and start shaking hands with people and everybody's right. being very friendly. And then you'll get to a table. Yeah. And they won't shake your hand. Hmm. You know, and then you'll drive out and suddenly there'll be a Confederate flag being hoisted by a bunch of protesters. The message isn't that subtle. No. <laughs> Overall, though, for every one of those, you got 10, right. 15, 20, 30 moments of, of small glory, you know? There's no such thing as one way to be an American. And, and that's why when you see some of the politics that has emerged. Crazy. When, so you, when, you, when you hear, you know, during, because during our campaign, right, you had Sarah Palin, who, who was sort of a prototype and, and, and a precursor of yeah. what was to come. And she'd talk about real Americans. And, I, and obviously, I, I didn't qualify. And, and when I hear that, I say, ah, you haven't been around much. Because they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> Americans come in every shape and every yeah. size. And that's the joy of running for president. You, know, you, you visit all 50 states. You meet people of every walk of life and of every station. And there is a running thread among us. Yeah, or, or, or between us, there's there's this there's this link, there's this bond. Even the yeah you know, the conservatives, the liberals, there there there's a, a certain set of common assumptions, but they get buried very deep. Part of the intensity of our argument is precisely because what we're arguing about are contradictions in ourselves. Now, you know, there's one question everybody wants me to ask you. Tell me what was going on through your mind when you were writing Born in the USA. All right. So, Paul Schrader, who directed Blue, Blue Collar, Collar right. sends me a script called Born in the USA. Right. Sits on my table. It's 1982. I'm writing a song about Vietnam because... I have met a vet named Ron Kovic who wrote a book called Born on the Fourth of July. I've met a veteran named Bobby Muller. Both these guys have been shot and confined to wheelchairs, veterans activists. I met him at, just strangely, I was driving across the desert and I stopped at a little drugstore and I 
picked up a copy of Born on the Fourth of July, drive the rest of the way, way to L.A., book in a little motel. This guy in a wheelchair sitting by the pool. A couple of days. Finally, wheels up to me and says, Hi, I'm Ron Kovic. I said, I'm starting to think like, wait, Ron, that sounds familiar to me. <laughs> I forget that I just read it. He says, I wrote Born on the 4th of July. I said, my God, I, I, I finished reading this book like two weeks ago. So he invited me to the vet center in Venice. Spent the afternoon there, just kind of listening, learning. That set me off to write something about it. I got the script on the table. I got some verses. And then I look at the script and it says, born in the USA. And I just go, born in the USA. <laughs> I was born in the USA. And I says, yeah, 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 that's it, that's it. This is a song about the pain, glory, shame of identity and of place. So it's a complex picture of the country. Our protagonist is someone who has been betrayed by his nation and yet still feels deeply connected to the country that he grew up in. Also, it ended up being appropriated as this iconic patriotic song, even though that was not necessarily your intentions. But I think why the song has been appropriated, one was because it was so powerful, uh, two was because its imagery was so fundamentally American, but it did demand of you to hold two contradictory ideas in your mind at one time, that you could both be very critical of your nation and very prideful of your nation simultaneously. And that is something that you see argued about to this very day. When you play overseas, what's different about it? Are you conscious about saying to yourself, man, I, I need to show myself as an American rock and roll balladeer? Or, or, or do you just kind of say, look, this is another audience and I'm just going to do me and, and, yeah. uh, and, and hopefully they respond, but maybe they don't. It's a little bit of, a little, little bit of all that, you know. Um, we have a funny situation where we have two-thirds of our audiences in Europe. We have maybe a third of our audience is in the United States. So we have a much bigger audience overseas. And exactly why that is, I'm not sure, but I know that people have been fascinated over there in the American story, films, music, for a long time. There continues to be just a deep fascination about it. The East Street Band, we 
we project drama, emotional power, rush of freedom, symbolism of equality, community, comradeship, pursuit of good times. We tried to create a sound that felt as big as the country itself. We celebrate what's best about the country and we criticize the country's failings. And I think people, overseas people respect that, you know. That, that was the thing that struck me about first coming into office as president was the degree to which even though when I entered office, uh, America's standing in the world had dropped pretty precipitously. Yeah. A lot of it having to do with Iraq. Um, Katrina had hurt our reputation, and then we were responsible for triggering a global financial crisis and, and a great recession. So folks were not in a, a happy place about American policy and the American government. But what people around the world know is this. America is imperfect. It has had chronic racial discrimination. It is violent. It has a, a safety net that compared to right. other advanced countries is lacking, oftentimes is ignorant of the rest of the world. All that stuff. You'll hear all these criticisms of the United States. But what everybody around the world also knows is this, that we are the only nation on earth where we are made up of people who have come from every place, of every faith, every race, every background, every economic station. And what the world is fascinated by is, can this work, <laughs> right? Mm. Can, can, can this experiment yeah. where you, you throw in all of us together and you set up a democracy where everybody's supposed to have a vote, at least after the Civil War and the post-war amendments, and you, you claim that all men are created equal. And if it works, it might be the salvation of all of us. Oh, I and sometimes we may be skeptical that it'll work, but in, in the back of their minds, what they're also thinking is, man, if, if they could get it right, <laughs> that would be a good thing the recognition of the dignity of all people and everybody having opportunity and every child can be president and anybody can make it if you try. And yeah. if, if, if that were true, man, that would be great. You know, every so often, we'll actually be who we say we are. And, and when that happens, the world feels just a little bit more hopeful. And the converse is when we don't. Yeah, it's dark, it gets dark. Well, because then people say, yeah, you know what? The world is what it is. It, 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 
America's acting just like China, or it's acting yeah. just like Russia, or it's acting just like the old uh, European empires, or it, it, you know, it, it turns out that we're still trapped in this yeah. this pattern of might makes right and, and the powerful yeah. exploiting the less powerful. Yeah. And so so people suddenly say, I, I guess I guess I can't hope for much more in my country either. And and but but, but when but when it's yeah. right, it's it's right. And 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 that's why for all the times we've made mistakes, you have always seen us able to recover. And that is why, by the way, our culture lives on even during dark times. That's why the French can have 80% disapproval of you know, the Iraq invasion and still 50,000 of them crowd, <laughs> crowd into a Bruce Springsteen concert the next day. and singing Born in the USA. <laughs> Something we don't we didn't talk about was uh, was Watergate, which you, know, you, you 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 were describing how that Nixon idea of the silent majority, what internally they called the Southern strategy, how that for you for the first time you saw a president specifically, explicitly, distinctly try to divide America. Well, you saw the division, you know, immediately the town split. And to, I was describing it this morning as there were men in the 50s, men and women of the 50s and, and folks of the 60s. And I got my, my lovely brother-in-law who married my lovely sister in 1968, one of the hottest years of the civil rights movement, was always a man of the 50s. You know? And he would have been a part of the silent what, what Nixon was calling the silent majority, and of course I fell on the I fell on the other side. But it was the first time those sorts of strict divisions was was deeply noticeable in society, and totally tied to the civil rights movement, race, and the increasing role of black voices in society. Yeah, look, you've got race, and to some degree, you also have. Just relationships between men and women are changing, too, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and to some extent, uh, that 50s guy, that silent majority, that, that solidifies, that hardens, right? And, and it continues to, to characterize our politics. I mean, N Nixon sets the blueprint. That's right. Although Nixon himself had gotten some of that from Goldwater. And, and, but he and, pushes it hard. But, but Nixon. The Southern strategy and Lee Atwater. And they take that to the bank as, as the way that they're going to hold on to power and, right. and make, the, make the country work for them. Now, part of the reason it works, when I thought about what it meant to be an American, part of it was there was an American culture that we shared. Right. The monoculture... What it did was it brought 
people together, except it excluded a big chunk of the country. A chunk of the country was invisible. Period. And then what happens is that part of the country that had been invisible, restricted to maids, porters, you know, villains, suddenly they say, oh, you know what, we're here. We, we want to be at the center of the story. And that's when all heck breaks loose. <laughs> that's when the silent majority says, well, hold on a second. We, we were f feeling pretty good about this shared American story. We understood right. what it meant to define ourselves as Americans. You're saying you want to be part of that. That's confusing to us. The, re the reason it's important to, to recognize how important that cultural element was is it's also reflected in the news, right? If there's a Fox News when Watergate happens, Right. It's not at all clear that Richard Nixon ends up impeached. resigning. Well, he would have been impeached, but he might not right. have been uh, uh, left uh, office. Yeah, left office, and and that I think is it's a hard thing to figure out. How do we reconstruct that sense of a common bond that you were talking about? Right. That sense of it's not blue or red. It's not black or white. It's America. How do you recreate that? if you have a splintered culture. The, the reason the Beatles, at some point somebody says the Beatles are, are bigger than God or bigger than Jesus. Right. Well, the, the reason is because they were on the Ed Sullivan Show, <laughs> right? Elvis is on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, that was part of that common culture. Absolutely. And I know there's been some debate over Elvis recently in, uh, as far as uh, cultural appropriation. But go go ahead and give me some uh, give me the the Elvis take right now. I'm a, and and I should say by the way, yeah, big Elvis fan. Okay, well Elvis, you know Elvis was part of my childhood. It wasn't part of my teenagehood. It was part of my childhood when I was nine. That's when he I saw him on the Ed Sullivan show. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, could I have your attention, please? Uh, I'd like to tell you that we're going to do a sad song for you. You forget Elvis appeared as a novelty act initially. You could have mistaken him for, and, and a certain part of it was, he was a novelty act, you know. He challenged images of masculinity, dyed his hair, wore makeup, moved, some said, like a stripper, like a woman, right? And so as a child, he just kept, he was like a cartoon figure. He captured your imagination. And so, you know, you immediately went to the mirror and started to shake all around and, <laughs> and you know, grabbed the broom and started to strum the broom. And, Mom, I want the guitar. And I, he got the guitar for two weeks and realized it was real and needed to be played. And that was that until the Beatles hit the shore. And I learned that all of the music, particularly the earlier music of the Beatles and the Stones I'd listened to, came from the black artists, Chuck Berry, uh, Arthur Alexander, uh, you know, just too many to mention, you know. And uh, so that, so I was sent backwards like that into the African roots, African-American roots of rock music. <laughs> Look, I, I, this whole issue of 
I don't, I don't want to get way late, but, and we can pick it back up. This issue of cultural appropriation. Right. I have to say I'm not a believer in uh, narrowly defining who gets to do what. I'm, I'm, with, I, you. I'm with you. I that. think we steal from everybody, everybody everywhere. everywhere. That's the nature of humanity. That is the nature of culture. That is how ideas migrate. Yeah. That's how music gets created. That's how food gets created. I, I don't want us to be thinking that there's this way of uh, is for that person and yeah. that way is for the other person. I agree. I think, I think what's always been relevant about cultural appropriation is if the black person who writes the song and who performs it better can't also perform it and can't get the record deal, that's the problem. The problem is not... I've got no problem with white artists doing black music because I don't think there is such a thing as simply exclusively black music or white music or right. Hispanic music. The, it's the economics and the power yeah. dynamics underneath it, which obviously Elvis was part of. He didn't create it, but the fact was that you had black songs being written that... Yes the black performers could not cash in on. Now, the only thing that could change my mind on, on this is Pat Boone doing Little Richard. That's a problem. It's brutal. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> I got a few other questions. Can I go? You, you are allowed <laughs> because what, what the hell? Go ahead. What else you, what else you got? All right. Um, just so there were just a few fun things. One was your American heroes. Oh, man. Yeah, we were going to do that. Okay, when we start? Yeah, go ahead. What, what do you got? Muhammad Ali. Ali is that's a, that's 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 a solid. He he he's way way at the top. <laughs> if we are uh, working off sports initially, you got to go with Jackie Robinson. Absolutely. Not only does Jackie Robinson make all of Black America proud to see him compete and excel in the face of the most vicious treatment and threats. But he also changes the hearts and minds of white America through the process. The, the number of white guys of a certain generation who will tell me how that changed them or their dads. Yeah. What it meant for an eight-year-old kid, white kid in the stands to be rooting for a black guy. Yeah. I'm extremely proud and pleased to be here this afternoon, but must admit I'm gonna be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a black face managing in baseball. Thank you very much. Music. You ready? What do you got? All right. I got my man Bob Dylan. Dude, you, you can't argue with Dylan. <laughs> no. <laughs> and he keeps on going. Yeah. He, he, he's a little bit like Picasso in the sense that he will just come up with different phases. Yes, great. And he just keeps on cranking out innovation. Yeah. And he, he seems to do it for himself. 
yeah. as much as for anybody else. He can't help himself. No, he's just, an artist. He's just he's, 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 he's this font of, of creativity. I got James Brown. <laughs> no hip hop without James Brown. <laughs> Musically, who you got? Ray Charles. That, without a doubt. America yeah, is uh, actually the national anthem. I believe you. I believe you're right. <laughs> no, no offense. No, no. To no. the other one. <laughs> no, 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 don't want, don't want to, you know, suddenly be getting a bunch of emails. Yes, it is. Heavy brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Aretha Franklin. Boom. Huge hero. I huge American. You know, if, if if I think about American music that could not come from any place else, you know, when I listen to anything Aretha's singing, I I, I feel American. Who are some of the other Americans who inspire you? So, not surprisingly, what comes to mind first for me is is Dr. King and Malcolm X, uh, sort of the yin and yang of the liberation movement uh, in this country that helped shape me so much. But sometimes those feel like larger than life figures, and and oftentimes the the folks that inspired me most were the less famous ones. Uh, you know, not just John Lewis, but Diane Nash and Bob Moses and Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Joseph Lowry, C.T. Vivian, Fred Shuttlesworth. Uh, you know, people who uh, never achieved that same kind of fame uh, might not have had those same extraordinary gifts and yet uh, because of their doggedness and courage, uh, achieved extraordinary things. Um, it, they're, they're heroes on a human scale. This was, I guess, early 60s was, uh, that I wanted to mention was, was Ruby Bridges. Yeah. You know, I mean, six years old, first black child to segregate William France Elementary School in Louisiana. Goes to school, federal marshals take her to school alone. As part of the White House collection, we were given the opportunity to hang the Norman Rockwell painting oh, of Ruby yeah. uh, just outside the Oval Office. So I'd see it all the time. United States marshals protect six-year-old Ruby Nell Bridges from the crowd. And this painting depicts Ruby, this tiny little thing with pigtails and white socks, and and all you see is the huge bodies of these federal marshals. And in the background, uh, you can see faintly uh, this graffiti scrawled uh, with the N-word on the wall.
Ruby came by. She's about my age now. Uh, we stood next to the painting and she kind of oh, described really? the scene and yeah. how she had felt. And you know, she was a great representative of that kind of quiet heroism that happened so frequently during that era. Yeah. Um, the absolute grace, you know, that you could still see it. That's incredible. At six day. years old. At six years old. As we broaden it, Lincoln still is at the center of of, of what I think about as 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 America. Mm -hmm. um, the the log cabin stuff is not a myth. He is a broke ass, right? <laughs> you know, growing up in in a very meager, limited circumstances, rough hewn. N not much formal schooling, teaches himself, essentially, by reading the King James Bible and Shakespeare <laughs> to become one of the greatest American writers of all time. Mm -hmm. Has an entire career before anybody knows who he is, riding circuit, in Illinois, teaches himself enough to pass the bar, become a lawyer, is, is riding around, making jokes and telling stories and doing business and making money. And yet somehow there is this deep morality and melancholy and depth that emerges out of him. Right. And he he finally then is is uh, is at the crossroads of this central question about America, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, are, are are we going to be a truly free nation or not? Mm. And he grapples with that in the most profound way, and he never wavers in his hopes, but he never takes his eye off the truth, including the truth about himself, right? And, and the, the bitterness of war and, and the uncertainties and the doubts. And what, I, what I'm always struck by is, is the fact that, that he did not break under that strain. Yeah. And it was an enormous strain. And, and my reverence for him does not mean that I don't recognize, look, I, he didn't necessarily think black people were equal. He just thought I shouldn't be uh, taking bread out of that black man's mouth who was doing all the work. I should do the work and be responsible for my own bread. So, so I don't over-romanticize Lincoln. Yeah. And, and I guess part of what I think are, uh, one of the hardest things, whether it's as an adult, in our own individual lives or as a nation, figuring out it is possible for you to see the wrong in people without negating everything about them. Mm -hmm. it's, it's possible to, to look at our founding fathers and say, yeah, they were slave holders. And, and then also say, 
but man, that Declaration of Independence is something. Mm-hmm. Be- because in the same way, I want to be able to appropriate any kind of music I want or any tradition I want or any uh, cuisine. I want to, if it's good, I want it. Yeah. I also want to be able to appropriate and claim for myself the example of the good things that other people have done, even if they weren't perfect. I like that. I, I, I want to be able to read the, the Lincoln's second inaugural and just revel in its majesty. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still must it be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I'll bet that sticks. Here's what makes me optimistic and, and, and uh, see if you agree with me on that. Because since we're, we're both, you know, I'm the hope guy. You are. You're, you're the... I thought I was, but you're, you're, no, you're no, better no, than no. me. You're, you're, come on, man. I mean, you're, you're the rising guy, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, so, so we end on an up note, right? Which, uh, the question is, what, what makes us think that we can get through this out on the other side? with an America that is whole and is true and is better than where we're than when we're at right now. And and we touched on this. What makes me optimistic is this generation coming up. And you saw this even in this election. Overwhelmingly The 35 and under crowd, Mm -hmm. they believe in a unifying story of America. Overwhelmingly, when you look at that younger Mm -hmm. cohort, our kids, their peer group across the country, 
they believe almost as second nature that people are equal. Right. They do not believe in discriminating on the basis of someone's skin or their sexual orientation or their gender or their ethnicity or their faith. They do not believe in economic order that is so grossly unequal that you can have a handful of people worth more than millions of their fellow citizens. They do not believe in a society that ignores the desecration of the planet. They reject the idea that we have no responsibility at all to future generations when it comes to issues like climate change. So the good news is those are the folks coming up. The question is, can we hold this thing together long enough <laughs> to, to, so that when they are old enough to be in charge, we haven't the screwed things up so bad that it's too late. And, 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 you know, I have to believe that we can do that. Our job is to help create that bridge for that next generation. And, and your songs and, and, and my speeches or books or this conversation, I think, is just to, to let that next generation know you're on the right track. You got to keep the lantern lit, my friend. Yes, exactly. That's right? the bottom line. It, it, that, 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 that America is true and real and available to you. I know it doesn't feel like it right now, mm -hmm. but it's there. <laughs> I, I agree. It's it's corny, but your children make you optimistic. You know, they they force you to be optimistic. It's it's their world that you're handing over now. I, I don't want to know a pessimistic parent. I mean, if that's who you are, you've done it wrong. <laughs> My children, I say with God's thanks, are solid citizens <laughs> whose character had barely the 30-year mark far outstrips my own. So they, they humble me, and uh, Patty and I, we live in their grace and are thankful. Thank I think we've done some good work today, brother. We did. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I learned something. So did I. <laughs> Woo!
dead man's town The first kick I took was when I hit the ground End up like a dog that's been beat too much Till you spend half your life just covering I was born in the USA Born in the USA I got in a little hometown jam So they put a rifle in my hands Sent me off to a foreign land Gonna kill the yellow man I was born in the USA Born in the USA Come back home a refinery Hiring man says son if it was up to me Went down to see my VA man He said son Don't you understand no. I had a brother at Quezon Fighting off a Viet Cong they're still there He's all gone He had a woman he loved in Saigon I got a picture of him in her arms Down the shadow of the penitentiary out by the gas fires of the refinery I'm ten years burning down the road Got nowhere to run Nowhere to go I was born in the USA Born I was born in the USA I'm a cool rockin' daddy In the USA Renegades Born in the USA is a Spotify original presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Joe Paulson are executive producers. Carolyn Lipka and Adam Sachs are consulting producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef and Arwen Nix are executive producers. Elizabeth Nakano, Mary Knopf, and Tamika Adams are producers. Mary Knopf is also editor. Andrew Epen is our composer and mix engineer. Additional mixing from Valentino Rivera. 
Rainier Harris is our apprentice. Transcriptions by David Rodriguez. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Gimlet and Lydia Polgreen are consulting producers. Music supervision by Search Party Music. From the great state of New Jersey, special thanks to John Landau, Tom Zimney, Rob Lebret, Rob DeMartin, and Barbara Carr. We also want to thank Adrian Gerard, Marilyn Laverty, Tracy Nurse, Greg Lynn, and Betsy Whitney. And a special thanks to Patty Scalfa for her encouragement and inspiration. And to Evan, Jess, and Sam Springsteen. From the District of Columbia, thanks to Christina Shockey, Mackenzie Smith, Katie Hill, Eric Schultz, Caroline Adler-Morales, Maron Heli Mescal, Alex Platkin, Kristen Bartoloni, and Cody Keenan. And a special thanks to Michelle, Malia, and Sasha Obama. This is Renegades, born in the USA. I think there's something in there that's worth something listening to. Shit. Somewhere. Somewhere. What do you think, guys? Something? Somehow. We'll be able to edit out a bunch of what Bruce said, but, you yeah. know, all my stuff clearly is gold. Just leave my guitar playing. <laughs>